Hello, and welcome to Historically Speaking, uncommon history with an unconventional pair. I'm Rebecca Robbins. And I'm Kim Kimmel. I'm a singer and actress. And I'm a retired history teacher. He was my history teacher in college. And now we've been married for 21 years. (laughs) Sometimes quirky, sometimes obscure. But this is the kind of history you actually want to remember. Hello, and welcome to Episode 8 of Historically Speaking Podcast. We weren't sure if we were going to be able to bring you this episode because we've been without power for a day and a half due to a massive snowstorm here. Uh, But here we are. Yay. So this episode is two sides of the same coin. People who were known for one thing in particular, but actually had some hidden talent that turned out to be pretty extraordinary. Yeah, extraordinary uh, double life meant in a good way. Yeah, two sides of the same coin. Yes, absolutely. And our our first will be? Our first is one of my favorite actresses, Hedy Lamarr. Hedy Lamarr. Gorgeous woman. Louis B. Mayer, head of MGM, described her as the most beautiful woman in the world. I think there could be a good argument for that. Yes. She was stunningly beautiful. And a, and a pretty good actress. A very good actress and uh, acted in various languages, uh, German, Italian, French, Czech, English. And she was also a first-rate inventor. So would you call her a scientist then? I would. I would call her a scientist. Um, okay, let's start at the beginning. Hedy Lamarr was born in 1914 in what was then still Austria-Hungary, which would perish in the flames of World War I. And her uh, father was of uh, Ukrainian-Jewish descent, or more specifically Galician-Jewish descent, and her mother was of Hungarian-Jewish descent. So she was Jewish on both sides of her family. And she grew up, uh, she won a beauty pageant when she was 11 or 12 years old. So oh, her, wow. her beauty was known very early on. She was very close to her father, who uh, was obviously a man of high intelligence, and talked to her about many technical and scientific matters. And she had the brain to understand this at a very early age. But she went into acting, and in her late teens, she was on the stage. She played the Empress Sissy in... The Empress Sissy? Ah, yes, Sissy, I call her... Not Sissy Spacek. I call her Sissy. Sissy. Yes, it's Sissy. And uh, then she married. The man was very... We're still in Austria at this point. We're still in Austria at this point. We're talking early 30s. Austria is still independent of Hitler's Germany, but just barely. She married a very controlling man who was uh, a great admirer of Mussolini. He was uh, one of the richest men in Austria, very controlling, and she fled him in 1937 for France. Eventually, she made her way to America. Which was Uh, probably a much safer place for her to be. Yes, and she got her Jewish mother out of Austria, too, because once uh, Hitler took over Austria in the Anschluss, the union with Germany, In 1938, Austrian Jews were, to put it mildly, not safe. So she made her way to America, and she started to act 
in a number of films with Clark Gable. With oh, so she Jimmy went right Stewart. to Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, she, she didn't was, stop in New York. She just went straight on to Hollywood. She was so gifted as an actress, and she was so beautiful that she started acting very soon after she came to America. She already had acting talents and credits in Europe. She made a film named The Ecstasy. Which was a little racy, from what I recall. Well, yes, it's been censored a great deal because you can actually see Hedy Lamar nude. And I might add here that her real name was Hedy Hedwig Kiesler, which I mentioned. But she took the stage name of Hedy Lamar, and that's how she's known. So was she inventing this whole time? I mean, was there a certain point in time where she stopped acting and devoted her time to this? Pretty much she was an inventor all her life. All her life. Yes. And in 1942, she invented, along with a pianist named George Antheil, what's known as frequency probing. I got it. What? Frequency hopping. Hopping. Spread spectrum. Yes. This is so technical because being uh, very pro-American, pro-British, pro-ally, she was very concerned about Nazi Germany. Being Jewish made her only more concerned about Nazi Germany. Sure. And she uh, came to be aware that torpedoes fired from Allied uh, submarines could be knocked off course because of radio frequency. So she and a pianist named George Antheil developed a patent by which you would have frequency that would vary by the second. And this is actually an ancestor of Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. Which is uh, extraordinary. And, and she got it patented in 1942. And did they use it in the war? Uh, they put it on the shelf at the time. but it was by, probably so new. And the fact that she wasn't a credited scientist made some skeptical. But by the 1950s, it was employed. And she actually got a patent. It was patent number 2292000 387 uh, in years. case you want to look that up. Listen. Yeah, in case you want to look that up, folks. 1942. She invented other things, too. She uh, Didn't had, she redesign a plane for Howard she, Hughes? She, Howard Hughes had uh, many discussions with her. Howard Hughes was, was a genius, although in his later life he did go bananas. And she told him that his plane designs were not aerodynamically efficient. She showed him illustrations of birds and fishes being much more streamlined. And so he put his scientists and engineers at her disposal. This so is that, Howard Hughes as in Hollywood Howard Hughes. And the scientist and, and engineer Howard Hughes, the entrepreneur Howard Hughes, and she designed airplanes for him uh, in conjunction with his uh, employees that were more efficient. And she invented other things in her home in America. She had an invention lab. All the while, she is... She's making films. She's making films, and she's gorgeous, and she's a great actress. She was, she was actually producing her own films as well, wasn't she? Yes, she produced How a couple films. How did she have time to do all this? That's extraordinary. Yes, she was a, a startling human being. I mean, it's almost... And she had the looks, too. Oh, my it's, gosh. It's almost like she was born yes. with everything. Yeah. Folks, if you haven't seen Hedy Lamar. I mean, take a look at her in her prime. I mean, she's as beautiful as a woman could be. Pretty extraordinary. And also, she did a great deal for the World War II effort of the Allies, raising uh, a lot of money for war bonds, millions and millions of dollars for war bonds. That was a big thing in Hollywood. Yeah, it was. was raising funds. For yeah, Bob Hope, Marlene Dietrich, uh, so many others. Uh, and it was so important. 
So this woman who was born in 1914, she died in 2000. She led. So once she came to America, did she live her whole life then in L.A. area? I think she lived most of her life in L.A., yes. But I'm, I'm not certain she didn't communicate between L.A. and New York and other places. I mean, right. she made a lot of money. She could go anywhere <laughs> she wanted. She made money not as an inventor, and she was a first-rate inventor. She made money as an actress. Her day job. Yes. And her most famous film was the 1949 film, uh, Samson and Delilah, where she plays Delilah and Victor Mature plays Samson. She was 35 years old at the time. And if you see the film, you understand why so many thought she was so beautiful. Really extraordinary. But we're going to stay in the same time period, pretty much, with our next person. Yes, we are. And this is somebody who was really known for we've mentioned a lot of things, We've actually. mentioned this guy over and over again. Uh, he's my choice for the single greatest human being over the last century, and this is Winston Churchill. Born in 1874, died in 1965, arguably the greatest prime minister in British history, saved his nation, wrote 56 books, 56 won the Nobel Prize. Books? 56 books. Nobel uh, Prize, okay. Uh, I mean, he wrote a multi-volume uh, biography of the Duke of Marlborough, a four volume history of the English-speaking people, and he was also a great painter. That's what a lot of people, I think, don't know. Yes, that's the... Uh, the that's hidden the, talent. Right, the aspect the of The flip Churchill. side of his coin. Right. He was a, a first-rate painter. As I think I mentioned before in a previous podcast, Picasso saw his paintings and said, hey, he could, he could have made it as a painter. Wow, that's pretty high praise coming from Picasso. So I recommend to people who uh, take a look at Churchill's life... Try to find out examples of his paintings. They were absolutely terrific. I wonder, if he, did he ever sell any of his paintings, or, or were they really pretty much for himself? He gave them the away, basically. I think the one he made of Marrakesh, he gave to FDR. Now, don't quote me on that. But I okay, think, I won't quote you. Right, but uh, he uh, he gave a lot of them away. So Churchill was a multidimensional individual. Right? Many sides right. of coins. Many sides. And so Indeed. now we're coming to Lewis Ooh. Carroll, right? Yes, we're going to stay in Britain. Yes. Uh, a very odd duck. Lewis Carroll's real name was Charles Dodson. He was born in 1832, and he died in 1898. He was a brilliant mathematician. He graduated from Oxford with first-class honors in mathematics. He lectured at Oxford for decades in mathematics. But he also is a brilliant novelist. He wrote Alice in Wonderland and many other works. Through the Looking Glass. Through the Looking Glass, yes. So he was writing these while he was teaching math during the day. He was teaching math as Charles Dotson. He was writing these great novels as Lewis Carroll. And Did he keep that part of his life hidden? You know, which is why maybe he had a pen name, because he wanted to keep his life separate? He definitely wanted to keep his life separate. Uh, he made a lot of money off of uh, Alice in Wonderland and subsequent works. Oh, immediately he made money off yeah, of it. Yeah, he did. He, he was not wanting for uh, finances. But he, he almost detested the fact that he was known as Lewis Carroll. He wanted to be known more so as the mathematician that he was. And he was a brilliant mathematician. He explored new avenues in, say, linear algebra. So this is another individual who had two great talents. He was a great mathematician, as Charles Dotson, and he was a great writer. Which is interesting because that's two completely separate parts of the brain. Because usually someone is generally better at one or the other. What makes this all the odder is that he was dyslexic. 
Wow, I, d- I did not know that. He was dyslexic, and w- which is one of the reasons given for why he went into mathematics. But then he's writing these extraordinary novels. And yet he was Professor Dotson to all of his he students. He was a lecturer in mathematics at Oxford for decades. And he never married. He lived a very solitary life. Yeah, he we, wasn't a social butterfly by any means. Not at all. We think that he suffered from uh, a lot of physical ailments like migraines. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I think he led, in many ways, a difficult life. And there are some questions about his uh, fascination with children, but it's very important to understand that the Victorian view of children versus the modern view of children is very different. And uh, we can go into detail about that, but I don't want I to I think do we need a psychiatrist now. with us for that episode. Yes, and I'm... To delve into that. I don't even play a psychiatrist at times, so... <laughs> you know what? I <laughs> I haven't either. <laughs> no, and, and I'm not going <laughs> to. So Lewis Carroll. Yeah. Yeah, Lewis Carroll was an amazing, brilliant man, uh, as was Churchill, as was Hedy Lamar. And this next person coming up. Someone in the 20th century who is still alive. Yes, this is the one we're going to deal with who's still living. This is the very talented, multi-talented Alan Page. Now, for NFL fans, you know that he's one of the greatest defensive linemen in the history of the game. In fact, he's one of only two, as I, if I remember correctly, uh, defensive players who won the MVP, Lawrence Taylor being the other. And Alan Page played his college ball at the University of Notre Dame. I'll never forget the 1966 Notre Dame-Michigan State game, which ended in a 10-10 tie between the two top teams in the nation. I remember watching it at my grandmother's with my father that day. And And he was playing. And he was playing. He he ended up playing for the Minnesota Vikings. How many Uh, seasons did he play with them? Many seasons. And he was an all-pro, I think, nine times. Wow. Uh, That itself is amazing. He's one of the greatest defensive linemen by any measure in the history of the NFL. And... That wasn't enough for him. No, it wasn't. No. He uh, got a law degree from the University of Minnesota in 1978. Eventually, he became assistant attorney general of Minnesota uh, in retirement after his football career. And then in 1993, he was appointed as an associate justice of the Minnesota State Supreme Court where he served for 22 years. Usually when people go into their retirement, <laughs> right. they want to, you know, go fishing, write a book, you know. Yeah, but Alan Page... No, he decided to get a law degree and, and become a judge. Right, so he has this amazing Incredible uh, career. athletic career. How long was his career? I mean, it was many seasons, right? It was many seasons in the NFL. I mean, obviously at least nine since he made and it to he the was, Yes, I, I think it was uh, something like 14 or 15 or something like that. And he was part of the uh, Purple People Eaters. Uh, NFL fans will know what I mean <laughs> like, by that. I, don't, I, I know a lot about the NFL, but I yeah. don't know a Purple People Eater. Purple People <laughs> <laughs> Say that ten times yeah, fast. Say that ten times <laughs> The Purple People Eaters were the defensive line of the Minnesota Vikings in the 70s, early 80s. And uh, Alan Page was one of the four. And, oh, uh, okay. Uh, and then he, he serves as an associate justice of the Minnesota State Supreme Court for 22 years. He had to retire in 2015 because mandatory retirement was 70. He's 75 now. In 2018, President Trump gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. 
that that's an extraordinary life to go from one thing I mean, most athletes, yes, many of them are very smart and have second careers. But to achieve what he did post-NFL, is has anybody even come close to doing that? Uh, well, I don't. you put me on the spot right now. And I don't, I don't, <laughs> well, we'll, we'll take a look, and uh, we'll put it in the show notes. Right. But offhand, I right. mean... I mean, Paige, uh, by any measure, uh, is a total success as a human being. He's a guy I'd like to meet. Yeah. And he's still around. Uh, the other people we're talking about are not. Yeah, so Alan Page, if you happen to be listening to this podcast, yeah. I will buy you a beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, and I'll buy the second one. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. That'll be a, that'll be a fun night. Yeah. Wow, Alan Page, congratulations. That's incredible. And now we're going to go back in time. Back in time. To around Churchill's era. And we're going... We're one of going Churchill's... Across the Pacific. Headaches. We're going to... Yes. Yes, it was. We're going to Emperor Hirohito of Japan. Hirohito was born in 1901. He would die in 1989. He would become emperor in 1926 when his father died. And he would reign as emperor from 1926 until 1989. That's a long reign. Now, Hirohito is very controversial, very controversial among historians and others. Many think that he was responsible for a lot of the atrocities the Japanese committed in World War II, the Bataan Death March, the Rape of Man King. It's a long list. That he personally ordered those? or Well, at least approved of He it. knew of them. Others maintain he was a pure figurehead and had nothing to do with uh, sanctioning these atrocities. And there's a wide range of opinion even to this day. Um, in Japan, before he died in 1989, it was not really permissible to mention any of this. But since his death in 1989, even the Japanese are at loggerheads as to exactly what his role was. But, but Hirohito also happened to be a first-rate marine biologist. In his spare time. Just as Hedy Lamar had an invention uh, lab in her home, he had a, a marine biology lab in his home. And he wrote many scientific papers on obscure marine biology subjects. Now, where did he learn this? He didn't learn it in Japan. Well, Hedy Lamar never went to college, and to my knowledge, neither did the emperor. And they just did this on their own. They learned it on their own. And he had a capacity for this. And uh, he was recognized as a first-rate marine biologist. And that was a dual career. Emperor of Japan slash by marine, day. <laughs> marine slash biologist. Marine by biologist. Day. Right. Now, did any of his papers become, not earth-shattering, but... I mean, is it something that added to the whole general understanding? My understanding is that within scholarly circles, within that field of marine biology, it did. But I don't think it made for everyday reading uh, for the average uh, Sure, you're person. not going to pick up a magazine and scholars, read an article. Scholars tend to write for other scholars. In fact, if you're a scholar and you write a book and it becomes a popular bestseller, it can actually help to ruin your career. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's written on such a yeah, pedestrian level, right. well, I there's guess. a certain snobbery that attends uh, a lot of the uh, elite scholarship world, and uh, that's a danger. They, has, they have to use those 25-cent words. Yes. Yes, they do. So he died, obviously, and he was replaced by his son? Yes, Akihito, uh, who uh, reigned for 20 years, and because of old age, he retired, and his son, Naohito, 
is now emperor over the since 2019. Now in Japan, how at least now, how powerful is the emperor? The emperor is a pretty much a complete figurehead, but uh, he is revered by many Japanese. Traditionally, the emperor was looked upon as divine. In fact, Hirohito had to disavow his divinity once uh, Douglas MacArthur and the Americans took over Japan. That was one of their demands. Yes. uh, MacArthur understood the Japanese mind very well, and he understood that Hirohito was extremely important to retain. But it was necessary for him to disavow divinity. But there's a lot of people who, uh, a lot of Japanese, who still think of the emperor as a divinity. Sure, because I'm sure they probably thought, oh, he's been forced to say this. So we're not going to necessarily believe that he's not divine. To our listeners, I just want to make sure you understand that there is a wide range of opinion to this very day as to how responsible or not responsible Hirohito personally was for any Japanese atrocities in the World War II era. And it remains very controversial among historians and other scholars to this day. Well, I would think that we'd be able to find out definitively one way or the other. Well, we have... By papers, by recordings. We have certain papers, documents, uh, diaries, memoirs, which point one way and others that point another way. But Douglas MacArthur, General MacArthur, uh, made the decision, I think the correct one in my opinion, that uh, it was necessary to retain him in order to establish a modern Japanese society post-World War II. So he remained emperor. He remained emperor. And it, it, what's interesting is uh, the emperor never visited anyone. People only visited the emperor, and that was very rare. But the emperor actually visited Douglas MacArthur when he was uh, in command of Japan from 1945 to 1951 which was a sign of deference that oh, had never occurred. And Hirohito was the 124th emperor of Japan. What a history. Yeah. But, and what a life. And a marine biologist. Yeah. Who would have thought? <laughs> I, I certainly wouldn't. Yeah. Okay, we're, we're wrapping it up here. Our final, oh, our yes. final coin. We have one more here. Uh, we're going to America. We're going to a fascinating man. Lou Wallace. Lou Wallace. Lou Wallace. Doesn't ring a bell, probably, for a lot of people. Probably doesn't. I think it probably should for more than it does. But Lou Wallace is famous for two reasons. He was a Civil War general, an American Civil War general for the North. He fought at the Battle of Shiloh. At the Battle of Monocacy in 1864, he is credited with stopping the Confederacy from taking D.C., So he played a very instrumental role as a uh, major officer in the Civil War. But Lew Wallace also was a major author. And his most famous book was Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur. Was he writing this during the Civil War? Oh, I don't know exactly when uh, Wallace... Because that's not a short book. I'm sure it took a long time. He wrote a number of books. He wrote a a work on Cortez's conquest of the Aztecs. He wrote a biography of Benjamin Harrison. I don't know exactly when he started on Ben-Hur, but uh, he finished it in 1880 when he was governor of New Mexico Territory. 
Oh, okay. And thereafter, he was our minister to the Ottoman Empire. He was briefly given a commission in the Mexican military. He was just all over the place. He was all over the place. He was an extremely brave individual. He was also a lawyer. His father had been governor of Indiana. Oh, so that's uh, where he grew up, was Indiana. Yes, yes. He was born okay. in Indiana. He was uh, a Hoosier from birth uh, to death. And then he, he fought in the war, and then he ended up in New Mexico. Yes, and then he ended up uh, as our minister to the Ottoman Empire, came back, and Ben-Hur made him a very wealthy man. Uh, I can understand why. Right. It's, a, it, it's an incredible story. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's, I've never read the book, but I certainly know the film. And it's been, well, there was a silent film version of it, but of course I think the most famous is the 1959 version with Charlton Heston in the lead role as Ben-Hur. How many Academy Awards did that I win? believe Ben-Hur in 1959, if I'm not mistaken, won 10 Academy Awards. And for anyone who has not seen it, and it makes no difference if you're religious or not, if you're Christian or not, it's simply a great film with a great musical score, a great plot, great, great acting. Great actors. Uh, Hugh Griffith won a Best Supporting Actor Award. Uh, Did Charlton Heston win? Yes, he won Best Supporting Actor. He actor. won, okay. Yes, as Ben-Hur. And so Lou Wallace, by the way, when Lou Wallace was minister to the Ottoman Empire, he had an opportunity to travel through the Ottoman Empire, and that's when he visited Jerusalem and the Holy Land, which he had not seen when he wrote Ben-Hur and finished it, although he familiarized himself with, with the Holy Land's topography, geography very well. But then he saw it firsthand when he was minister to the Ottoman Empire. That's one thing, you know, if you could go back and, and talk to somebody or ask somebody a question, right. I, I would want to ask him, after you saw the Holy Land in person, is there anything that you would have changed about the book, about the story? Well, or? That's a good, I hadn't thought about that. That's a, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Yeah, he, died, he died in 1905. So he uh, never, yeah, he didn't even get to see the silent film. No. You're right. He never did. I think the silent film was made around 1926 or something like that. I think he would have been like pretty proud of his work. I think if he, if he could have seen the 1959 film, I, I'd like to think that he would have found it to uh, have honored his novel a great deal. And of course, he was a devout Christian. Which uh, most people were. Yeah, at that time in America. And... Sure. But, That's interesting, though, that he would choose that topic. He chose a lot of topics. He wrote on a lot of subjects, and uh, he had... He wasn't... Did he have a formal education? No, he, the last time he was in school was when he was around 14 or 15. Like Abraham Lincoln and so many others in the 19th century, Andrew Jackson, he became a lawyer by becoming an apprentice to a law firm and then reading law and studying the nuts and bolts and then taking the bar exam. It's, it's just amazing. I mean, He must have read an extraordinary amount of I think he was a, a brilliant books. individual. Right. Uh, his uh, performance at the Battle of Shiloh was uh, of mixed review. Eventually, Grant exonerated him. But his performance at the Battle of Monocacy in 1864 basically saved... Uh, exonerated him. I want to go back to that. What do you mean by that? Well, the Battle of Shiloh was a two-day battle, April 6th and 7th of 1862. It was the first truly major battle of the Civil War. It was a brutal battle in uh, southwestern Tennessee, and Lew Wallace got certain directions from Ulysses S. Grant via a messenger, 
and he thought they meant one thing and Grant meant another thing, and so there was a conflict there. Oh, there was a breakdown in communication. There was a breakdown, and uh, Lou Wallace always felt very bitter about the fact that he had been judged badly about his performance at Shiloh. And in Grant's last year of life, Grant admitted that uh, he had judged Lou Wallace wrongly, but still uh, that rankled in Lou Wallace's um, soul so until So he thought, death. obviously, that it wasn't his fault. He absolutely did. But Lou Wallace led, like Hedy Lamar, like Winston Churchill. Like the whole list of people. <laughs> right. Alan Page. I mean, there's so uh, many people we could have covered. Lewis I mean, there's Carroll. Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, Jimmy who Stewart. Who was an incredible pilot and uh, yeah, World, he War II World War II hero. I mean, and then he comes back and he's a great, a great actor. And yet he served in World War II uh, in a sterling uh, capacity. Flying those dangerous yeah, missions. Right. Double lives. Most of them, most of them, for good. Hirohito's case, up yeah, in the air. Hirohito up in the air, but at least as a marine biologist, he was he was pretty good. Yeah. I wish I had another talent as extraordinary as something like that. I wish I had one talent. <laughs> well, you have an incredible mind. How about that? Uh, you have a great capacity to memorize. Yeah. I just make it up, folks. None of this happened. <laughs> well, we don't want to start those rumors. <laughs> no, no. Some will believe them, won't uh, they? Yes. Yeah. So that wraps it up then for episode eight. And, oh, I think we do know now what we're doing for episode nine. Oh, we do? Rarely do we know what the next episode is, but I think this one we did decide. Pray tell me. I think we're doing an episode on sensational marriages. Sensational marriages. Marriages that, hmm. Would that include ours? it, It could. It could very well. Yeah, in case you don't know, listeners, we are 23 years apart. Yeah. That's pretty sensational. But the episode coming up, you'll want to follow along because it's kind of fascinating, I think. Yeah, I think we have a nice list. Some of those people. So anyways, we always thank you for listening. And stay well, stay safe, stay warm, because it's freezing out there, at least where we are. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye, folks. Well, friends, here we are at the end of the podcast. Be sure to check out the links in the show description to find some of the resources we used for this episode. Also, if you've enjoyed listening, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a virtual high five by leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. And if you'd like to connect with us directly, you can find us at historicallyspeakingpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at historicallyspeakingpodcast. That's it for today. And again, thanks for sharing part of your day with us. And remember, if you want to know what the future holds, study the past.